You are about to opt in to Monerotopia, a show for the Monero community where all are welcome to join. From noob to maxi, no matter what bags you hold. Just sit back and relax to the sweet sounds of Monero's latest progress. Or if you're feeling inspired, join us on stage. Remember, the only thing that can stop Monero is a false belief that it can be stopped. And if you want to win the revolution faster, we recommend you remove your XMR from all custodial exchanges immediately. Warning, boating accidents are common around here. Don't forget to properly secure your private keys. Monerotopia starts now. Hello, hello everyone. How's it going? What's going on? Good morning, good morning. Um... Let's get the word out there a little bit. Anybody who's uh, watching, just if you can, tweet it out or share it. Let's get the numbers up. We got a big show here. I don't want people missing out. Let me put it in the Telegram room. Let's do this. Let's uh, do this. Well, <laughs> <laughs> people missing this, obviously, we'll we'll play the recording. Yeah, you can always watch the recording, but it's but so much, much better live. So much better live. You, you can get to feel ex- it. Experience all yeah. the issues firsthand. Yes. All the issues that we have on a weekly basis. It's okay. It's what makes us special. We stand out more. <laughs> I think we're hard on ourselves. I don't think we're that bad. So yeah. what do we got? Let's let's uh <laughs> sorry. Let, let's keep the intro fascist because we got a we got a lot going on. So you want to put up the um Monerotopia Surely. website? Let's do that. So yeah, guys, Monerotopia, it's coming along. It's gonna be in May. Today on the show we have Crypto Zoidberg, uh, Andre, dun, dun, dun. Uh, from Zano. We interviewed him a, a few years ago. Uh, he's one of the uh, his renowned historic figures from the Crypto Note project, uh, which eventually evolved into Monero. Uh, so it's it's always. Uh, an honor to talk to him, hear his stories. Here's what he's, hear what he's working on. He's continuing to make new breakthroughs in, in tech with what he's doing over at Xano with his, uh, proof of stake slash proof of work mining algo. We'll get into that. Uh, and we also, we brought mind your biz on the show. He's gonna, uh, you know, come on and talk about the, the other side of that. You basically, I think it's going to be a debate that takes place between <laughs> proof of work and proof of stake. Um, dun, dun, dun. So this should be interesting. Yes. Uh, always, to, you know, to to clear the air as always. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I think you might notice we're starting to uh, talk to some of these other privacy projects a little bit more. It's because we want them involved. We want them at Monerotopia. Uh, same argument I always make. I think this is just a really small space globally. The amount of people that actually like truly care about digital cash. I'm not talking about like the pumpers and people that want to make money. I'm talking about people that are actually like really interested in this idea of building an unstoppable protocol for people to transact privately over the internet. It's a small community of people that actually like truly believe in these ideas. And unfortunately among that small community, it's been splintered, right? Cause you have all these different projects. So let the projects compete. But let's also come together uh, and align uh, on these basic ideals, and then we can talk about the tech. Me, personally, 
I'm all Monero. I'm, really? I'm staying all Monero. And it's no mostly idea. because the network effect. You can't deny it. So it's not because of my uh, blind allegiance to it because my bet. It's because, you know, it's just, it's the maximalism argument, right? There's, there's something to be said about Bitcoin maximalism. Uh, there's, you know, as much as annoying as it is, uh, there's also validity in the fact that it was the first mover. It has the network effect because of that. It has liquidity and none of these protocols have value when they don't have users and they don't have liquidity. And so that's where Monero really stands out. It's the number one quote unquote privacy coin, or I think it's the number one form of digital cash we have. People actually use it to transact. They actually go on the black market and they use it to buy things. They actually use it for its purpose other than just trying to, to, to pump up. Uh, all that being said, I think it's really, I think it's, I think we're moving in the right direction if we start talking to these other projects more so we can get their com- communities combined with ours. And so that's, that's what you're witnessing here. That's what we have, uh, Cryptozoiber coming on and it should be an awesome show. Uh, if you want to see it in person, come down to Monerotopia. Um, we have an amazing lineup already and we're talking to a lot more people. I have people reaching out. We're actually getting to the point where it's like, we're trying to like, are we going to be able to fit everybody in that? But that also, that being said, please reach out if you want to speak, right? We haven't made all our decisions yet. If you want, yeah, yeah, definitely reach out, especially if you have something that you want to present that's, you know, groundbreaking or, you know, interesting or, you know, obviously it's got to relate to Monero digital cash. It could be another project if you think it somehow relates. Uh, for example, we had somebody just reach out yesterday that wanted to talk and we got on the phone and we're like, yes, we, we want you. Uh, it's a guy who's been selling and, uh, trading on local Monero for since local Monero existed. He sounds like he's like a pretty big user and he wants to come and give him a presentation on, you know, how to, how to use local Monero, what it's actually like, what do you have to worry about? You know, what's, what's involved, the, the, the legalities of it. I mean, he's not an attorney, but he's going to talk, you know, practically speaking. Um, Cause I know there's, there's apprehension there, right? We always say, you know, best way to obtain Monero is out without KYC, preferably with cash. Local Monero is one of the ways to do it. But, you know, I think there's apprehension. People don't actually always then, then take the next step. So this guy's going to be down there talking as somebody who does it all the time. So that should be really cool. He's going to try to hide his anonymity uh, or hide his identity uh, in some way, just because I think he's, he's a little concerned about that. But just an example, somebody reached out to us. We made him a speaker. Uh, and an example of, you know, the way in which we're thinking, right? It's not just about, um, you know, somebody who's working on some super newfangled tech, although we like that too. You know, if you're, if you're a cryptographer that's published some paper that we're not aware of that somehow can relate to improving Monero, please reach out. Although I doubt you're, you're tuning into this. You're probably <laughs> working on, uh, said cryptography. Um, but if you're somebody that's working on, uh, something that will help create a Monero circular economy, reach out. Uh, you know what this is all about. So um, if you're on the edge, uh, you know, err towards the side of reaching out and we could talk about it and we could see if uh, it makes sense to be there. Also, you could be there in other capacities. You don't have to be a speaker. Uh, obviously, you could just attend, but you could uh, have a table. We could give you a table. Maybe you want to present your project that way. So just putting that out there. 
And last but not least, please spread the word, guys. What's going to make this conference as good as it can be is having the place being packed with people that believe in uh, digital cash. So uh, please buy tickets. Please tell your friends. Please get the word out to your communities. Maybe you're in like, you know, more like you're in the libertarian community. Push Monerotopia to those people. They, sh- they should become at least they should at least know it exists. Um, if you're in some other privacy coin, whatever, push Monerotopia to those people. They, they should come down and, and talk to, you know, uh, digital cash, uh, aficionados. Um, yeah, I think I more than covered it. I think you buy did. Buy your tickets. Yeah. Tell your friends. Please buy your tickets. Today. And we'll make this amazing. What else we got? Price report? Uh, price report. Yeah. Now we have the news. Tony recorded the news. Yeah. He wasn't able to join us this morning. I'm thinking, should, for the sake of time, because we have these two big guests, maybe we don't play the news, but then we put it post it, okay. post it after. We could do that, and we'll yeah. edit it into. Well, we the, usually do the post video. it. We usually do post. Um, so we'll post it right after, after this, like separately. We post the price report for those listening. We post the price report separately after the live streaming, and as well as the news segment. So if you just want to catch either one of those, you can. So yeah, and then that will save us twenty minutes because I'm I'm limited on time today too. I got to go. Coolio. Witness my daughter. Uh, witness. <laughs> witness my daughter on, That's a weird way of putting it. <laughs> on, on stage reciting a poem, which, uh, no offense, guys, way more important than any, any of this. Of course. <laughs> yeah, you gotta run to that. All right. So, okay. So have anything else you want to rant about or we're nope, good? No, I ranted the, enough. Did you? Did you? I don't think you did. I don't think you did. I think there's more. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to the price segment. The Monerotopia Price Report segment is sponsored by Local Monero. Avoid using KYC exchanges. Buy and sell Monero directly for fiat, peer-to-peer. Aloha, Bob. Hey, guys. Um, I don't know if y'all can hear me. I'm not able to hear you through the StreamYard link. Um, Oh, I I don't know. I'm not sure how this is going to work. Yeah, we can hear you. Send me a Telegram message if you can hear me right now. Yes. Yes, Yes, we we hear you. Why can't you hear us? I don't know. Mm. Okay. All right. Well, uh, that's, um, that's great. Then, uh, I'll just go ahead and push with the price report. And, uh, <laughs> if, um, if y'all want to come in with some questions, I'll keep my, um, my telegram pulled up on another screen. So, uh, today, um, I kind of want to talk more about macro today, particularly because next week there's a whole bunch of, um, big numbers coming out. Um, so let's first, uh, we'll just start off with Monero. Nothing really exciting happening except for like the same trend is continuing. We just strength all the way up. Um, we're now trending on what was a resistance line. Uh, so that's lovely. We're still hanging out inside of this rising wedge here. Um, and it looks almost like we want to, it almost looks like we want to push higher and, and bump out of that. When you're in a bullish spot, it is very possible, um, to actually break these rising wedges to the upside and then go even higher. Um, that does happen in bull markets. Usually, normally, rising wedges are going to be a bearish structure. Um, you're going to eventually break down to the bottom and, and then go down. But in a bear market, that's, you know, when you see rising wedges in a bear market, that's typically something you want to be worried about. Um, but to me, Monero uh, XMR BTC is in a bull market. So rising wedges in a bull market can very often be bullish structures and not necessarily bearish structures. Um, 
So, yeah, there's not a whole lot going on here with uh, since last week for, for the Monero price. You can see uh, dominance took a nice bump here. Uh, and this is the weekly chart, so that's, you know, a very long time frame. Now, again, as we've been talking about, we are coming up on this on this long-term resistance line. Um, so that, that, again, it could pose some challenges once we get there. Um, the divergence is not too much happening. Um, Binance has actually been above uh, Kraken's price lately. Uh, that's with the volume adjustment. We take the volume adjustment out. <laughs> we we get to see how Poloniex, for whatever reason, just just tried to divert their prices down. Um, so again, you know, the, the fact that Binance is actually doing volume above Kraken's price, this probably does have something to do with um, our continued strength, our continued price strength. So yeah, with Monero, you know, there's not a whole, like I said, not a whole lot going on. Um, the uh, longs and shorts, they're they're still basically at parity. There's about as many longs as there are shorts, but in reality, there's just very few positions open compared to uh, what we've seen from Monero in the past. Um, <clears throat> so before we talk about all the um, economic numbers that are coming out next week, I thought it would be a good idea to touch on the reason why we use log charts. There's often a debate, should you use log charts, should you use um, something else? And to me, the answer is pretty simple. This is the M2 money supply. Now, for those of you that don't know what the M2 money supply is, it's a measure of all the U.S. dollars in existence. And you could kind of put quotation marks around U.S. dollars. Um, so M2 money includes M1. So starting with M1 really is probably the best place. That would be cash, coins, and checking accounts. Now, they reclassified savings accounts as M1. Uh, it used to be classified as M2 money. Uh, they did that in the middle of 2020. So that made M1 spike up like crazy. Um, in fact, maybe I can show you that. Yeah, so here's... um. <laughs> so this spike right here, let's go to the log chart. Um, this spike right here was actually just the reclassification of savings accounts as M1 money. Um, Okay, but anyway, so the thing is that M1 is all checking, all savings, and all cash and coin. Um, M2 money includes time deposits that are less than a year. So you're talking about like CDs, money market accounts, and there's quite a lot of money wrapped up in all that. In fact, there's more money wrapped up um, as time deposits than there are as, like than there is in just regular cash and checking. So now the reason why we look at log charts is really simple because the monetary system is logarithmic in nature. Um, logarithms are how you deal with percentages. So like in, um, when you do like basic economics in college, whatever, um, you'll learn about how these equations are done and effectively log charts help you deal with percentage increases every year as opposed to, um, I don't know, just, um, uh, natural, you know, natural scale. So the reason that we use log scale is because the economic system itself behaves logarithmically. It behaves as a percentage over year. Uh, every year, they target inflation to be 2% every year. Um, so that's inherently a logarithmic uh, logarithmic chart. So um, that's why we use log scale. But the other reason is also um, maybe we'll go to uh, a regular old, if I can find it. There we go. Here's the NASDAQ. Um, and actually, you know, maybe we should just go to the S&P 500 um, because that has a longer price history that goes all the way back to uh, – the early 1900s. Okay, so you're looking at a very, very large chart here of the S&P 500. And um, you can see I kind of, you know, drew some lines here, whatever. But essentially, you can see that this goes up in kind of almost a straight line over very long periods of time. Whereas if you change this to a regular scale, right, you can see that 
you, you just don't get any resolution here on the bottom. Like there's a lot of interesting price action happening down there, at least in terms of percentage, right? How price is changing as a percentage relative to um, to what it was previously. So you lose resolution on the low end, uh, and then you only see the exponential part of that. Um, so you have to use logarithm because our monetary system is an exponential process. So um, sometimes it's reasonable to use a non-log scale, like when you're looking at something like the dollar index or Bitcoin dominance, uh, right? Those are charts that are range bound, um, so they're not necessarily um, subject to the kinds of uh, uh, exponential process that uh, that most of the rest of the economy is. Um, so, okay, with that in mind, just so that you guys can can be aware. Um, we have a lot of big economic numbers coming up next week. This is going to be a really big week for me personally uh, in, in when, um, when I rebuy, uh, if I intend to rebuy. So um, we had the producer price index. Uh, that was on Friday, so just yesterday. And that's the white line right here. Let me expand that. So that's the white line right here, and that came down. That's good. We want to see these inflation numbers coming down. That makes it so that the Fed can pause their interest rate hikes. Maybe they don't have to raise it as high. Um, so that came down. That's good. Maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll also see um, these numbers coming down as well. Um, the core inflation is the main one that they look at. So that would be uh, the line in blue here. Um, that's that's the biggest number for the Federal Reserve in terms of what they're looking at for inflation. So on uh, Tuesday, we're going to get the producer price and uh, sorry, the consumer price index. And with that will also be the core inflation. Um, we're going to get the unemployment numbers. Now, I don't, it's probably no one here really listens to, uh, Jay Powell when he gets up and just talks at length, um, about the economy. But in his last meeting, he talked about how unemployment and labor demand, um, is one of the big things that drives inflation. There's a very high demand for labor and there's not a lot of people, um, that necessarily want to go back to work. So, um, that's, that is causing a problem. There's not enough people producing all the stuff that we use, um, so that's he kind of puts it in a corporate way that sounds nice, but really kind of if you read between the lines, he's kind of saying, yeah, there was too much mad gains happening. Um, <laughs> too many people retired early, uh, more than you would be expected, uh, more than would be expected from demographics alone. You know, um, people getting old and retiring. Um, so essentially, that was because of all the money they printed. So they're very they're very well aware of that. Um, so, uh, yeah, we've got the inflation numbers coming out. Um, what else do we have? Uh, the Fed meeting is on the 13th, so that'll be uh, well. They it's on the 13th and the 14th, but they release their um, their press releases on the 14th, uh, so that's a Wednesday. Um, so next week is just a really big week. If we see the inflation numbers coming down, if the Fed maybe only hikes 50 basis points or 25 basis points, maybe they throw the markets a bone. Um, maybe they give us some forward guidance that highlights the potential for pausing stuff like that. Um, that's that's kind of what we would prefer to see if you want to be in risk assets. Um, so then we could just go ahead and take a look at the crypto market and, and uh, as a whole. So, uh, you know, again, still things are just kind of moving flat, um, like we talked about last week, uh, mildly positive. You know, we had a bit of a dip um, this week and then it came back. So, you know, things are ultimately just flat for the most part. Um, you know, so that was total. This is Bitcoin right here again. Flat to mildly positive. Um, I want to also talk about Bitcoin dominance. In fact, what I wanted to show you guys today um, was to do some comparisons between um, between crypto versus the stock market, and then also look at Bitcoin dominance with some adjustments made. So um, the the line in orange that's Bitcoin dominance. The line in gray here 
that's going to be Ethereum dominance, and then green is stable coins. That's stable coin dominance. Now, um, there's a lot of adjustments that you can make. So if we make no adjustments, and we just show, let's remove stable coins uh, for now, and remove Ethereum for now. Okay, so, you know, quite simply, this is Bitcoin dominance, right? Um, maybe we could try and draw some kind of trend line here. Uh, it's, that could be possible. Um, but anyways, the point of this chart is not so much to, to try and draw trend lines, which we can do. Maybe we'll look at that in a second. But the idea is that we really need to make adjustments. There's about 20 to 25% of Bitcoin has been lost forever. By the time that Ethereum and Monero and these other coins came around, people had realized just how important it was to back up your private keys, to back up your seed phrase. In fact, seed phrases didn't even exist when Bitcoin was invented, so they had to make that because of people losing their keys. So the reality is that, um, okay, there's maybe 20 to 25% lost Bitcoin. There's, who knows, maybe there's like 5 to 10% lost Ethereum and the loss of an arrow. So I say we can make this adjustment around 15%. We're going to do is we're going to subtract, um, we're going to subtract those Bitcoin out of the equation. Um, and the other thing that we can do that people, uh, especially maximalists will say, Hey, it's, that's not fair. You have to subtract stable coins from the calculation too. Um, cause they're just, you know, on the one hand, they'll be like, no, printing stable coins doesn't matter. And that didn't cause anything to happen with price. And on the other hand, they'll be like, no, 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 it's, that's, that's not real. Those aren't, those don't count. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to have it both ways. Okay. But anyway, so we'll subtract stable coins. We'll apply the adjustment for lost BTC and, um, the chart doesn't really change too much, right? Um, let me do that one more time. It's like that. So the reality is that stable coins aren't really affecting the dominance calculation that much, which I think is something important to point out because um, I've heard Bitcoin maximalists try and use that as an excuse. They'll be like, well, you know, you have to subtract the stable coins. That's not fair. Um, but when you do, you see that it doesn't actually make much of a difference. So the other thing is that um, I want to show the Ethereum dominance and also the stablecoin dominance because stablecoins are increasing um, as a percentage of the total market cap. Now, with Ethereum, I think it is fair. We should include total value lock. There's a lot of coins. There's a lot of tokens and stuff on Ethereum that do a lot of things. Um, and that does represent some kind of economic value. It does represent interest that people have. So we should include the TVL in Ethereum's market cap. Um, and you can see that, uh, you know, it's we're not really looking at that big a difference here. Um, there was a period of time where there was only about a 10 to 15 percent difference, this bull market between the Bitcoin and the Ethereum market cap. Um, so what I like to say here is I, I like to talk about when Ethereum gains parity. Because it's not so much like people like, oh, the flippening, but that's that's more of a meme, right? What we're going to see happen here probably is Ethereum and Bitcoin are going to start kind of dancing, right? We'll, we'll see where they're they're sort of flippening each other for a while, but it's it's really more like market cap parity. Now, I tend to think that's actually that's going to happen here in the next few years. Um, Ethereum just serves some very basic needs, <laughs> needs, uh, desires of cryptocurrency, one of which is, let's be honest, degenerate gambling. Uh, I am no saint in that regard. Um, but Ethereum does do that, and it serves stablecoins, um, which we can see here in green. So stablecoins are increasing overall. Now, this includes um, uh, Tether, USDC, Binance USD, and um, I didn't include DAI because DAI is pretty much backed by USDC and Tether and a few others. Um, so it's I just figured that, you know, the big ones, just include the big ones. There's a bunch of other little ones out there, but they really don't make much of a difference in this chart um, just because they're such a small percentage. So that's what Bitcoin dominance looks like um, and Ethereum dominance looks like when you make these various adjustments. Um, the other thing, this is a chart that I, I think is just a beauty. Um, it's the Bitcoin divided by uh, the NASDAQ. Now, you can kind of see, um, we're going to take a little, a little historical look here. 
Um, so what we're looking at here is 2014 to 2015 bear market uh, and then the bull market that ensued. You can see that these levels here um, are actually quite remarkable. Uh, the way that uh, that price tended to come back to uh, to particular levels. So, for example, you can see here the the peak in 2014 that became significant later on the very first pullback. So, Bitcoin um, in 2017 broke through the uh, and again this is a ratio. We're taking Bitcoin and we're dividing uh, Bitcoin by the Nasdaq. So that means that Bitcoin is becoming uh, relatively more valuable compared to the Nasdaq uh, as this chart goes up. And so you can see that, um, you know, this spot right here was uh, was very important um, when the first pullback happened. And then you can see that the very first peak after Bitcoin broke through um, its uh, its previous all time high, uh, that next peak was a very significant spot. That was basically where the bear market bottomed. Um, and we can see this kind of all the way up. The next peak that happened, that ended up being the temporary floor that Bitcoin hit um, for uh, for the bear market. And then that was basically the floor in 2020 before we went on the next bull run. So um, this is a very interesting chart. I think it's I think it's worth anyone um, it's worth your time to look at and to really sort of scrutinize and, and see what kinds of trends you can find here. Um, so right now we're essentially sitting at the same levels as the little mini bull market that happened in 2019. We spent um, pretty much the last I don't know almost the last six months hanging out um, in this zone where Bitcoin kind of peaked out in 2019, uh, June of 2019. And, um, you know, this chart, this doesn't look so bad. Like, it looks like, okay, we had that big red candle right there. Um, it's hard to say exactly, you know, where things are going to go from here. Uh, let's go ahead and take a look at the overall statistics. Yeah, those don't really tell us a whole lot either. Uh, at least at the moment. there's This chart doesn't show us too much for what price might do at the moment. Um, one thing I would maybe be a little bit concerned about, is that this spot right here could now become, oops, uh, this could now become resistance. One second. There we go. So essentially we fell below, uh, this pretty important, and again, this is a weekly view. So, uh, the weekly close happened right there. It's a natural spot to draw this line. That was also kind of, um, similar spot where we paused for a moment before going into the bull market. So my only concern is that this could become kind of resistance for some period of time. Uh, there's also the potential um, to actually come back down further. So that would be um, another minus 17%, not in the U.S. dollar price, but again, 17% less valuable relative to the NASDAQ. Uh, we can do the same thing with total market cap. Um, let's see, we're on the weekly. So this is the total uh, crypto market cap divided by um, – so we're actually dividing this by the Vanguard uh, total – Stock market value. So instead of dividing by the NASDAQ, we're just taking total and dividing it by all stocks. Uh, and that's what, so Vanguard is one of those like aggregate, what's the total value of, um, of all stocks. So, um, you know, we can do the same thing here and, uh, it looks pretty much the same. Although you'll notice that, um, we still have a little bit of ways to go down before hitting the, um, the 2019, uh, blow off the little mini bull market, um, right there. So it's foreseeable, it's reasonably possible that we could come down here, especially because the stock market has been showing significantly better strength relative to BTC. Um, so let's find my stock market charts. We'll look at the NASDAQ. Um, actually, no, we'll look at the S&P to start with. Go to a shorter time frame. So, okay, this is the S&P. 
uh, 500. And you'll notice kind of right here, we topped out um, as we touched that uh, resistance line. This is the overall bear market resistance line. Um, I do think we're going to break this at some point, but I also think that um, this is a bit of a rising wedge structure. It's, it's not entirely a wedge. You could you could draw the line maybe more like that. Um, but at any rate, I do expect us to have one more um, pullback. This yellow line right here, this is the top of – this is like the pre-COVID stock market highs, the, the pre-COVID 2020 highs. That's what that yellow line is here. So um, I have – this has been a target of mine for quite a long time. Maybe we don't get there, right? Maybe that's too prominent of an area. People start buying it. People front run that. It's very possible. But I do expect that we are going to take some kind of pullback here, um, either December, maybe January. Um, but I'm seeing us – everything is setting up for a big move next year. So, again – as I've been saying for the past few weeks, I expect us to make some kind of pullback. We will probably touch this line, break the bear market resistance line, and then actually go for a pretty, pretty big run next year. Um, that's kind of a more long-term view. Um, NASDAQ. So what's interesting here is the NASDAQ didn't actually touch the um, the resistance line, the, the bear market resistance. It, it kind of stopped short and hasn't got there. So it, it is possible that we could kind of just chop sideways for a while, maybe something like that, take a pullback. Um, so I don't know exactly when this pullback is coming, and I wish I could say that with more confidence. Um, but realistically, the numbers that are coming out next week and the Fed meeting next week, that's that's going to drive um, for the most part. I think that's going to drive what will happen for the next month or so. So uh, next um, next price report I have for you guys, we'll talk about the Fed meeting and what I think that um, what I think that means for uh, for where risk assets are going to be going, like crypto. Uh, and then finally, we can just take a look at um, the relative movements from the past week. Um, so crypto overall, uh, so you can see that um, we kind of started the week nice. We pulled back and then we came, kind of came back to neutral. So uh, again, everything is just kind of flat. Nothing's Nothing really too big is happening here. Um, so just, uh, you know, keep on keeping on. If you're DCAing, that's probably not a bad idea to be doing right here. Um, I'm still going to wait to see what the news is next week on the financial numbers, but um, there's a good chance that I could start um, buying buying back some more of my crypto positions um, as this uh, as the news comes out. So, uh, but hopefully, um, if anyone has any questions, you know, you can shoot them in the in the chat here. Uh, Doug, Sunita, I can't hear you guys <laughs> right now. So, uh, actually, you know what I'll do? I'll turn up my volume on the YouTube. Well, buddy. Bye. Great hey. job, uh, as always. I'm actually going to go back and listen to this press report again when we, when we finish the show because it was slightly distracted. All I gathered was uh, Monero's, Monero's looking good. Looks like we're we're nearing the end of the, the bear market. Good time to accumulate. Sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. Let's move it along. Yeah, let's can't move it along. Just in case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, people Thank that are listening it. in the Twitter spaces, if you can, you know, tweet it out, like the chat. Let's, let's, let's get it out there. We're about to start the. Oh, we hear him. Yeah. I think he's like trying, but. Yeah. Body, uh, just turn, turn your thing off over there because we could hear the sound. Um, but yeah, people listening in Twitter space, just please, uh, retweet it, get it out there. So we get a bunch of people in the room. Uh, we're going to have the conversation with crypto. Sorry, uh, I'm muting myself for a second. Anyways, thanks, guys. Um, I'll see you guys in the uh, Twitter spaces later on.
Okay, cool. Thank you. <laughs> Bonnie's on another another planet. I don't, how why can you hear us? I don't know why. Like Usually what changed? I had nothing changed. We'll have to talk to you about that. Yeah. yeah. We can never have a no, smooth it's okay. Shot. There's never. always something. Just, just deal with it. Just embrace. It's part of the, the charm. Yeah. It's part of the charm. It's like for the people that have been watching um, it and following it for years, they know it's like we've improved significantly. I mean, we're doing a lot issues. of things here with the spaces yeah. and everything. So there, there's. Yeah, I think my computer's tired you, also. You definitely make it more, uh, more complicated. I think my computer is like slowly dying because it's tired. We need a new computer. We. It's, uh, yeah, I think it's, yeah. It's obviously. time, you know? It's time. Time to sell some Monero, buy a computer. <laughs> um, obviously with Monero. Uh, so let, let's go ahead. Let's, let's move to the guest segment. Let's get it going. Yeah, let's get it going. All right. Sounds good. Let's do this. The Monerotopia guest segment is sponsored by Cake Wallet. Store, send, receive, and exchange your Monero and Bitcoin safely on iOS and Android, too. Cake Wallet is open source, and you always control your own keys. Oakley dokley. All Hi, right. Guys. I, was, I muted you. Mind your biz. Sorry. You can unmute yourself. I can't. Oh, thanks. Wait. So I, I had already seen I mute everyone just in case. <laughs> wow. Wow. They're here. Hello. They're here. Yeah, been a while. Andrea, if I, if I recall correctly, it's been a little over two years since I interviewed you. Uh, it was your first public interview over on My New yeah, Biz. Yeah. 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 I, uh, I appreciate time, the Monero talk. Right. Yeah. Um, I had, uh, I had a, another controversial person in the crypto community, one Nicole Grinstead, nerd girl. She's kind of a noted, uh, hexagon contrarian. If that's a thing, right? Like, uh, yeah, in, an in internal, both apologist and uh, contrarian in the hex community. Yeah, we interviewed you a little over two years ago, and I appreciate Doug that uh, that you did a follow up interview with uh, with Cryptozoidberg. I think maybe six or seven months afterwards. It was, it was good. Yeah, um, I don't I don't remember the dates, but yeah, I think uh, I I learned about Andre I guess through your interview. So anybody who's not already, do you, are you are you still putting out a lot of content? Yeah, I mean, not as much as I used to. It's not a regular cadence. Um, I don't take regular sponsorships. Um, but I do, it's cause I work in crypto media, right? So, so I wound up brokering deals for other, other creators. Well, any, uh, any, any of space. our people that are watching now that don't yet know you, which I, I don't think that's the case. I think, I feel like everybody that knows Monero Talk already <laughs> knows Mind Your Biz, but if you don't, uh, go, go follow this guy. Thanks so much, man. So I don't think, yeah, I don't think you've ever been on Monero Talk or Monero Talk, right? No, I haven't been. Yeah, it's weird though. Like I I haven't been on what Bitcoin did either. I generally speaking, if, if there's a maxi bent to the show, I, I am not usually invited. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I guess there's a maxi bent here, but you're, you're always invited, man. More, you're more than welcome to, to join at any time. Uh, I, I, I I really enjoy your stuff. So we have a huge, huge show here today. I think this is awesome that we got you. This started as a tweet. I think Andre had, had put out a tweet that he uh, he wants to revolutionize Monero, uh, you know, make it proof of stake, and uh, there was there was a whole bunch of you know uh, back and forth banter, and mind your biz, I think came on and, and mentioned that he would be happy to argue why that's maybe not the best idea, and uh, it turned it turned into a, a show here. So do you guys want to each maybe state? You know, who, who you are in the backgrounds before we go into, uh, breaking down the issue. Andre, go ahead. Yeah. I, I mean, I was just, um, reading the tweets. Uh, my Twitter is, uh, full of, uh, Monero followers. It's somehow Twitter keep suggesting me Monero people. So 
everything I see in my uh, feed, it's uh, connected to Monero somehow. And uh, I saw the post uh, I was just uh, suggesting uh, to use proof of stake because I believe it would help Monero a lot. But um, uh, proof of stake uh, uh, often connected with uh, a lot of mystery and uh, legends. And I always have to fight this. So that's uh, lead to this show, I guess. Andrik, please, please just give a, like a quick uh, intro of yourself. Though. I know we, we're just assuming everybody knows. We mentioned at the outset, but if you just kind of describe yourself a little bit. Uh, yeah, I'm a software developer. I was um, working on a original CryptoNode code base at the very beginning, and then I left uh, this project that was uh, called Bitcoin. Some people know it. No, this way and uh, launched my own project, Bulberry, which I, which I was trying to run. Uh, and then I uh, uh, made another project and we did a coin swap from Bulberry, the project called Zana. It's uh, what we're doing now. That's how we innovate uh, in the privacy. That's what we do. Awesome. And mind your biz. Why do, why do you know so much about crypto, man? You're like, uh, you know it all. Well, well, let's go. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> ooh, ooh, danger, Will Robinson. Um, first off, thank you. You're very, very kind, Doug. Uh, as you know, after talking to a lot of people in the space, nobody knows it all, right? Like, there's always something more to learn, and the rabbit hole is so deep, um, and so interconnected. So appreciate your uh, your kindness in having me on the show. Um, and it's so funny, like Andre's uh, humility is is exactly what I remember of the interview with him from a little over two years ago, where he's like, oh, you know, no big deal. I just helped with the original crypto note spec and in implementing the original crypto note spec. Just happened to revolutionize privacy coins by accident. Um, so I, I love that about uh, about Andre and, and, and being able to chat with him today. It's, it's really a treat. My background is in corporate training. I worked for several Fortune 50 companies, Microsoft, Google, Samsung, Dell. Um, so being able to do large group facility, uh, training facilitation, uh, have a, a room full of 50 people or 200 people, 300 people, a small, uh, just a, a small arena full of people and helping them walk away with key talking points about technology that they need to go either implement or sell. That was what I did for a number of years. And after a, uh, a particularly strenuous push to get Microsoft Windows 10, delivered. We had the highest uptake of any release of Microsoft Windows to date, the team that uh, that I worked with. And in no small part, thanks to our training, the way that we uh, went and won that mindshare, it was the, the fastest opt-in of any uh, upgrade of, of Microsoft Windows. Well, I'm also kind of a closet, free and open source software maximalist. I, I love Linux. I run Linux at home. Um, and except for when, you know, like on this device where I'm, I'm running Mac OS, um, only using I'm only using homebrew, by the way, um, totally, totally anonymously. But uh, but being this sort of free and open source software fanboy, it kind of gnawed at me like, what what have I done? As we started to see that there was so much more telemetry that was baked into Windows 10, that as a platform, the OS was kind of designed to erode our privacy, right, and our anonymity. I kind of felt the weight of conscience and was like, oh, my gosh, that's kind of evil. Uh, parallel to all that, I uh, had a couple of brothers that they created a multi-coin mining pool back in 2013, told me all about it, said, hey, Seth, you got to get on board of this. You got to learn about cryptocurrencies. Start with Bitcoin, branch out from there. At that time, you know, I didn't have many options, right? It had to start with learning about Bitcoin. And then um, 
And then, yeah, the rest is kind of history. I, I witnessed the agony of defeat as one of my brothers, you know, failed to get in on the Ethereum ICO and, and get some massive returns for his portfolio there. And, uh, and then after that really uh, big push to get Windows 10 out, um, I saw an opportunity to get involved in mining, mining content, and, uh, and then just media production and marketing within the cryptocurrency ecosystem. So I, I ran out at full speed ahead because I could feel good about it. Um, I realize it's a, it's a roundabout way of explaining my background, but no, uh, that, that, was, that, it's, that was great, man. Um, so what is, what is kind of your whole, whole I feel like we got to do, we'll, we'll have to do a separate show as well. I, I need to get you on a Monero talk, but what is kind of your, your current take on crypto? Like what, what are the projects you're most interested in and why? Wow. Uh, that's a tough question to answer because you have people, especially now in the, in the, uh, the so-called build market, right? Um, right. Like le- legends don't die, right. Especially in, in crypto and code, right. It, it, uh, it lives forever for at least for as long as the libraries are valid. <laughs> so, um, you might have to do updates there, but, but there are projects like Zotto that actually that still have my attention. I talk about them on a regular basis when I do, uh, when I do my live streams and I let my audience know that some smaller teams are still building and they haven't given up. Um, but I do leave the door open for projects like Chia where, you know, you, you have, um, you have developers that, that did really meaningful work a lot of years ago. And now they're, they're trying to bring something of value into the blockchain ecosystem. And so I'm hopeful that projects like that will be able to innovate and, and actually offer something of value. But, um, but it's so hard to, to tell with, with some of those that are still kind of riding the hype train of the last bull cycle and who got a lot of an injection of a lot of VC money. So it, it's, um, yeah, it, I struggle to say that I'm like really excited about, you know, about something that's some unique project. Um, but the, the main tent pole cryptos, right? Bitcoin is supposed to be sound money, right? It's supposed to have that fixed monetary supply that really appeals to people, to the libertarians, right? To the Ron Paulites. So I've always got a soft spot for Bitcoin. It, it really is kind of the, everybody's first crypto love. Um, and then Monero, of course, because Monero fill, it fulfills on the promise of anonymity, right? Uh, inherent anonymity and fungibility that everybody thought was available with Bitcoin. So like that, that doesn't go away either. But ironically, I'm also starting to find that I really, I like the analogy of Litecoin as, as silver to Bitcoin's gold. Oh, wow. I used to hate that. I really did. And then, um, well, here's why. Let me, let me, I feel like I, yeah, I really have to explain myself here. Um, so with Litecoin, because it's merge mined with Doge, you know that the, uh, the excavation process and the mining process for, for silver, you're familiar with it. Yeah. In the real world. Um, probably not to the degree that you're getting to. So go ahead. There you go. So with gold though, you know, there is an industry that's dedicated just to mining gold, right? In the real world. Mm-hmm. Silver doesn't have that. Silver is a byproduct of mining other minerals, of uh, mining other materials. So that for me kind of, I don't know, uh, a switch just flipped in my mind. I was like, oh my gosh, Litecoin is currently merge mined with Doge, which has all this love from, you know, characters like Elon Musk. That's kind of similar to, to silver in the real world where it's totally a byproduct. At this point, it's almost like a byproduct. And, and I think that Litecoin can, it can exist in that environment of merge mining. Um, but I, maybe not in any other. So, <laughs> maybe so not Charlie, in any other Charlie Lee just saw the future. He knew that one day, uh, Doge would, would, would take off yeah. and he would just be a, a byproduct being mined alongside. 
Oh, he saw the future at the end oh. of 2017 and sold those bags for sure. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what, what other insight he had. We'll see. That was, a, that was an amazing move. That was an amazing play by him. I, I got to give him congrats. We get the applause going for that. Um, all right. So that, that, that's a good overview. And now <laughs> that, that's a good overview of where you're at. Cause I wasn't exactly sure where, where you kind of stand on cryptos. You know, I know you talk about Monero and everything, but I wasn't really sure of your overall stance. Um, yeah. So this, this convo is about proof of work versus proof of stake. What is, what is, what is your take there? Is, can they both exist? Are there benefits to, to proof of stake? Are there, are we going to see proof of stake coins succeed or fundamentally does this stuff need to be proof of work? So I'll jump in and just offer my thesis very fast. The reason that I wanted to take this up is first off because I respect Andre enough that, uh, that I know we'll have a great conversation and debate today. Yeah. But my thesis is, yeah, uh, no, it's my pleasure, man. Any, anytime. But, uh, but as far as my thesis as to why I think that proof of work is, is we're going to see, we're going to see this bear out in the next, especially election cycle here in the United States. Why proof of work is so important is that there is a growing narrative of so-called ESG and compliance that, that of a necessity will force blockchain projects to kowtow to government interests. ESG is a growing narrative that we didn't even hear about five years ago. I mean, I'll challenge anybody in, in, in your audience, in your chat, to let me know. Did you hear the, the acronym ESG as it relates to political concerns five years ago or the last time that you went to, uh, to cast a vote in the United States? I don't think you did. And if you're across the pond in the EU, I doubt you heard it five years ago either. But it's become all of a sudden extremely important this election cycle. Why? I contend it is because it is another means of control and projects that move to proof of stake line themselves up to become more compliant to those government demands. Proof of work does not need to give in to those same government demands. And proof of work offers that level of censorship resistance and transactional uh, transactional censorship resistance that's necessary to maintain decentralization and permissionlessness. Beautiful. I, I, I don't know, Andre. I, 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 I agree deeply with everything, uh, mine, your biz just, just said. Uh, but please He's thinking. He's thinking. tell us. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm not, uh, familiar with the political, um, obstacles about, uh, this, uh, this stuff. Uh, I'm not really, uh, not even, uh, think about this because what we do is we building technology. Uh, at first, and uh, we solve the problems, like technological problems. Uh, and uh, what we're trying to do is to avoid um, rewriting of the transaction history. That's why we need a consensus. So what we do is we're trying to make the code, like there is no such thing that you can protect it like for forever. You can just make this more expensive, the cost of attack more expensive. So what we do uh, in Zana is trying to make this attack more expensive. And that's why we have, we still have a proof of work and proof of stake. But, uh, the reason we have a proof of work still, it's the reason why it's a hybrid system, because we have to protect ourselves from, from a long range attacks. That's how we uh, protect ourselves. And, uh, 
that's that's my uh, primary argument. That's why we use proof of stake. I I would love to hear about this, but uh, what what you're trying to say that uh, the government uh, how they uh, exactly control your consensus with this stuff? Can you give me some details? Absolutely. So here's one example is that here in the United States, our Office of Foreign Asset Control, uh, which is a division of the U.S. Treasury, has put the smart contracts that were used by the Tornado Cash developers, uh, which offered fungibility on the Ethereum network for, for several yep. token pairs. Um, they put it on a blacklist, and they have essentially said that any U.S. citizen that's found using them is breaking the law. That has created, um, at this point, it's created a cascading effect within the Ethereum community where now the validator infrastructure of Ethereum, since it's gone to proof of stake, has censored those smart contracts. They weren't yeah. asked to directly. The, the legal system didn't even ask. There, there were no subpoenas. There was no due process from the political uh, machinery there, right, of this Office of Foreign Asset Control. There was no direct request for them to do that. But in uh, out of an over-eagerness to show compliance, they censored them anyway. And yeah, uh, I worry I about that becoming a growing trend. And, I mean, frankly, even if they hadn't just volunteered to do that, if the request did come from those government offices, I think that the, the fact that they already did so preemptively proves that uh, I think it's something like 70% of the validator nodes that have already censored those, uh, those yeah, smart contracts. Yeah. I think if the request came out officially – it would be nearly 100% compliance. Yeah, I agree with this, but I think this happened because the the model that they have on the Tornado Cash had a really weak point with this uh, censorship. For example, uh, some of the stable coins, uh, they have a blacklisting. And uh, it's also our concern. We were thinking how to bridge liquidity from Ethereum network into Zana when we uh, deployed uh, assets, uh, confidential assets. And uh, we cannot use the like, classical custodian bridge anymore because uh, it can be blacklisted anyway. So, uh, but I still believe it's a problem, like technological problem of Ethereum at this moment because they have uh, this um, this point of weakness. Uh, what we do on our side, we uh, mitigate these problems. Like uh, we don't have uh, addresses. Uh, anywhere seen uh we have everything hidden and the proof of stake the way it works uh nobody knows who confirmed the block by which uh, amount of money is confirmed it's everything uh, hidden so from this perspective we fighting the same thing we try to keep it uh decentralized and uh with uh, like keep it free from censorship. Okay, so I, I definitely hear that. And I see some comments coming in as well um, regarding uh, a willingness to change consensus, because that can happen as well. I mean, a, a project is only as strong as its maintainer, right? Like being able to just ignore certain pull requests and and ensure that uh, that there is a direction that the project is growing towards that uh, that allows for that level of censorship resistance. So, and I know that can be the, the case for any consensus model, but the biggest concern yeah. I have that 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 macro sure. thesis is just that that the ESG narrative that's growing across many different countries is that I, I think, um, and let me be more clear because I didn't quite uh, connect the dots here before. I think that the reason that political figures 
and uh, and the media in particular are pushing this narrative of ESG is because they want for us to feel like we must conserve power and energy in exchange uh, for some I don't I don't know. They haven't really actually proven to us that us not using electricity will definitely save the planet or, you know, or or govern the people better. Um, but they but they indicate to us that this should be the case. And I think the reason that they're doing that is because they want for these systems to move to well, relatively centralized proof of stake systems in which the only means to vote necessary is ownership of the token. Well, Governments are very, very good at printing derivatives and printing money. And with that initial fiat printing, they can purchase those tokens. That's those are in, instead of the cost of a 51% attack, which would be ongoing in order to maintain full ownership of a chain and the new fork, hard fork, a contentious fork of a chain, which is costly over time because you have to maintain it. You have to maintain those costs ongoing. Just owning the tokens. As a simple game theory principle, uh, for, for current world governments and, and their programs, much easier to achieve. It's certainly here in the United States, right? Where we've printed so many, like we, we printed yeah, many then, multiples of the, of the total crypto market cap. Yeah. But then they can print the sm- same money and to buy a power rate or a power like hash rate or rent, even rent hash rate with like with even cheaper price. It's well, easier. Maybe. Like, I mean, Perhaps. if we talk about control, I don't think governments, uh, at all care about, uh, like, um, uh, electricity or, uh, ecological problems, honestly. I think they care about control at all. Correct. And from Agreed. this perspective, I see, uh, proof of stake more decentralized than proof of work because in proof of work, you have, a uh, people, uh, participants who has, uh, less skin in the game because they bought or rented hardware. They can mine any project they want and, uh, they just did some investments or rented it. As I told, it's like a, like Uber and, uh, they, I was, I know it because, uh, my early project, the Bulberry, I, I suffered a lot. It was the first project was proof of work, uh, only. And uh, we suffered a lot from unfair play because proof of work, uh, miners come to the project. They, uh, they can swell your hash rate. They can, um, they can commit a double spend and they lose nothing. They just have a profit. While if you have a proof of stake, the coin holders, uh, even like we know that there is nothing at stake problem that Vitalik uh, explained it. But, uh, as soon as you have a, like, a, like, a major holders, that's not, never going to happen because they have a, they bonded with a project with if they do something uh bad to the project to consensus they will lose more way more so i see uh like there is a, a lot of um uh like bad implementations of proof of stake where people just pretend to be decentralized but actually they control the network because like they have a validators uh, bunch of service which actually control the networks and because of this a lot of people started to think that proof of stake is uh, equal to decentralization, but it's not true. It's not accurate. The idea of uh, proof of stake is just to make holder of the tokens, uh, to become validators, to become the participants of consensus. That's the idea. And uh, I believe it uh, gives you more decentralization. Also, from my experience, when you have, um, 
unfair behavior from proof of work miners that's where uh people just uh they bought some uh like expensive equipment they want to make money from this of course it's a business they go to the pools and those pools are just managing this hash rate they see by themselves which are more profitable to mine they go to this uh, projects do the mining and i saw like they've been hurting a lot of projects especially in the early days when uh it's been a lot of projects who had a difficult adjustment adjustment window like it was on a bitcoin for two weeks and uh, can you imagine the weak project the small project with a small hash rate some big pool come to this project with a low difficulty they do the mining for uh, like a one minute they uh, rise uh like they 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 mine hold this two week supply in a few minutes rise the difficulty to the sky and leave the project and then the project is dead like because after the pool left they cannot mine like any blocks so i saw a lot of really violent behavior from proof of work miners because they they mostly don't care about projects i can tell you like even more stories about proof of work hash function optimization while it was also killing a lot of projects with this way so it's quite wild and th- th- that's right. the reason main reason why we brought proof of stake because i was like reading a lot a lot of stuff about that and also if you follow uh um follow the articles of the vitalik of vitalik buterin he was also uh, ma- uh was writing a lot about proof of stake the evolution of proof of stake are now brought us to more consistent technology it's more complicated uh, it's really hard to implement especially in privacy blockchain it's like really hard to deliver uh, proof of stake in a privacy chain especially preserving the privacy but that's what i believe is more reliable oh yeah absolutely so i i know one of the earliest forks of monero that implemented proof of stake i think it was cutcoin um, that, yeah, they, they had a very difficult time. Um, a couple others as well that tried to stay much, uh, much closer to the fundamentals of, of Monero, um, without making the larger departures. And I know one of the things that I respect about Zano is that you, you have made an effort to create a divergence in development and not have it just be right where you're, where you're, uh, where you're riding on the coattails of the Monero developers and just implementing a few small changes to have your own consensus model. Um, so I, I've been monitoring the launch of your project. Well, since launch, I was at, I was a week zero, you know, a week, a week one minor of Zano when it was pure proof of work. So, so I appreciate the effort that you Thank put you. in. Um, what, what I'll say about, uh, about proof of work and some of the, the relative violence, as you mentioned, of, uh, violence of action, right? In intensity, I mean, uh, intensity violence. and violence of action. No, I, I know what you mean though, right? It's, it's a lot of hash rate. I mean, if you trans, if you did translate that into kinetic energy, it would be violent actually with the, uh, the amount of, uh, energy that's being used. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it is, it, it's pretty intense. I'm going to say something that sounds almost like technological Darwinism. So I don't, please don't take this personally. There no, is no, I, I totally agree with this. I mean, yeah. it's, that's the one of the things I like about crypto because of this, uh, weak projects just die. And yes. that's probably a good thing about crypto. Yes. And so it's very difficult. You, you have some projects that attempted to, to uh, innovate proof of stake models early on. And I'm talking yeah. about like some of the, like proof of stake 3.0, right? With black coin. They still had the, the fair launch mechanics of proof of work before they transitioned over. You had some others, 
I, I don't, I don't want to say anything bad about any specific projects, but there are some projects that have been essentially limping along this last market cycle that innovated in proof of stake, but could not find the strength of, uh, in the marketplace, right? Of a solid use case, daily utilization, regular, uh, regular usage in commerce or whatever their use case was, micropayments, remittances, whatever, whatever they, they aim to fix, they couldn't quite get enough wallet adoption and real world daily usage. And so it doesn't matter how many bots they had doing wash transaction back and forth daily to try to fool retail plebs. They didn't really have the use. And so they didn't get the adoption that they needed over years. And they just limped along and they're just sort of like this, uh, this blight, sort of this wart on the face of crypto that just won't go away. And it just needs to be excised, right? It needs to be brought into a doctor and, and removed. Unfortunately, some of them. I don't think that's the case with Zano. I think you are building something of real value. Well, in, I, in the I case of many it's... other projects, so what I'm saying is proof of work sorts through that. And so if there is a violence of action and it almost seems malicious, uh, proof of work has a way of sorting through that faster. And I forwarded over to the hosts. I'm unable to share because I don't have, per- I've got a very restrictive environment on my computer. Otherwise I would have, I would have offered to share my screen. But, um, but there are a couple of sites. One is uh, Crypto51.app um, that was set up by uh, by a developer who just wanted to pull in some of the on-chain data and some of the Oracle price feeds to show how much it would cost to execute a 51% attack on various different chains. This is just a fun, it's, it's a fun tool. It's not perfect, right? Let's just agree. There's a lot of problems with data feeds in crypto often, right? We're always struggling to find the best data. Um, and Monero is missing from this list, strangely. Why? Should, I, Why? I, I don't know. Yeah, Do you right, think I, it's I, not? <laughs> I mean, yeah. every proof of work consensus, if it's classical Satoshi uh, consensus, which Monero right. is, and it's yeah, really it easy to calculate. You get the cost of the block reward multiplying the confirmation, and that you have the price of the double spend attack. And yeah. that's yeah, where proof of stake also wins because if you do the quick calculations, that the mass will not let you lie. Uh, the cost right. of attack in the pre- any proof of stake project or or hybrid will be like maybe 100 times more i mean you still can do mm. double spend attack so, but it's the way that's so much expensive like it's crazy right, you probably you won't be able when, to do this the, depending on the yeah but depending on the consensus the the consensus model if you need to have say like a two-thirds quorum vote within your validator network or depending on how you have your proof of stake set up if you get to a certain point where it's like well we need 80 percent uh consensus from from this before we can do a double spend at what point do we start to just agree that that you're you're looking at the same level of consensus of just a centralized server with fallbacks right why no, why not no. just use docker on AWS? no it's confusion it's not it's not accurate actually uh okay to the first of all validators uh just i won't just avoid um confusion because there is a two general as, like, as far as i know two general models of proof of stake consensus the first model is what we use with what we use is statistical model where everyone who has coins has a chance to uh, confirm block everyone can create block it's statistical uh, more money you have more coins you have more chances more often you create a block but everyone has a chance to create the block or other uh, family of uh, consensus algorithm which is uh, based on Byzantine fault tolerance where normally you have a bunch of validators who locked some coins to be to become a validator and uh, that's also that's 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 type of 
consensus, they tend to be centralized. I would agree with this. They have a pros and cons. Uh, cons is because it tends to be centralized because uh, it's limited to some some uh, some number of people who have the most balances, and they between each other they do this. Uh, well, this is still very expensive to attack this, but it's centralization. Uh, right. But they, I guess as, what I mean, as a pros, yeah, what I mean they, have, uh, they have features like finality and stuff like that, which also really cool from like finance perspective. Right. So yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna just I'm gonna latch onto that last word you said there with finality. The the issue that I have with being able to seize the means of attack for a proof of stake network is that once they are seized, it is final. So let's just let's let's set out just what do you a, mean a, a uh, what do you mean by yes. seized? What is it? So, uh so taken. So let's take for example some taken of the money? Uh, some of the, yeah, oh, no no um for, forcefully removed. Yeah. Forcefully removed from another person, seized. Money. So, I mean, oh no no no! I'm talking about just, just the mean, just the means of production. So between those two camps, proof of work, the means of production would be mining hash rate, and it doesn't even matter how you achieve it, right? We can we can go take alien technology, and if it can hash SHA two fifty six faster than the current iteration of yep. of ASIC chips from Bitmain, then that's what we're using, right? We we want the alien technology. We don't care yep. about Bitmain anymore. Um, in the case of proof of stake, we need ownership in in the token supply. And yeah. so the issue that I take with uh, the game theory between the two is that once a foreign actor or uh, or a, a bad actor, whoever it is, it could be a nation state, it could be just it could be a mafia, it could be a cartel, it could yeah. be any number of people who just have the means to take that, and they don't even necessarily need to buy it, right? They can go to the, the they can go to the whale wallets and say, all right, I've got a five dollar wrench, you know, or or I've got Seal Team Six, and I'm going to go yeah, and how it's possible and go take, to take your things. Over- so much people, like if you have a few hundred uh, major holders in Monero, how it's possible to uh, like seize all these people's money? I mean, it's practically nearly impossible, I think. And if we compare this opportunity to a uh, weakness uh, of proof of work, I would say proof of work has uh, more chances to be uh, attacked than attack like a bunch of uh, rich people, if you're talking about this. Well, yeah, so I, I don't know that I've seen any, I don't know that I've seen enough real world examples of that happening with proof of it being a nation state actor to believe that. No, what I do have is the receipt on 51% attacks that were successful. Bitcoin gold, a couple of, uh, gosh, it's been three, four years ago now where they were yes. attacked and, and the attackers successfully got away with a 20, 20 million or so double spend. It was a brilliantly executed 51% attack, right? Yeah. It was, I mean, as far as like, crime drama as far as like how like the mechanics of crime like you have to respect that they did it very well um but there aren't that many examples in recent history of 51 percent attacks being successful on networks like monero or or like ethereum even and in, in its last throws of, of proof of work the the thing with proof of work that gives it that resistance is that there's a certain point at which coordinating the hash rate becomes a headache and then sustaining the hash rate for more than a single double spend attack becomes a bit of a headache and once you do it does go into a contentious hard fork and then the community decides okay why did we why did we hard fork and then why community decided community didn't have time well, because you're the one that control your wallet you're the one that controls your wallet, so you just choose uh, you choose where you're going to spend. Where, where normally community gonna... won't have a time to decide uh, what will be decided is algorithms that coded in the core by your team and the attacker normally 
uh, he will learn this algorithm, find the weakness, like uh, typical proof of work. Uh, so he create this uh, chain, overcome it, and then it happened in a minute. The community won't be able to even figure out what happened because the cell already took over. Because the this uh, pri like this alternative chain normally mine it, mine, uh, getting mined in private, nobody see it. Then he published it, and the all core all, all the nodes are in the network are doing reorgani reorganization. It's gonna happen in a minute. Nobody a community won't even have a time if even if they would have a chance to decide, they won't ever, uh, even have a time to decide. So that's why you focus on technology at first. I mean, from human factor, if we are humans and we are decide um, which fork you choose, that's going to be working perfectly. But right. So I guess we I, I guess the, the issue, the only issue that I have, Andre, with with the example that you set forth, because because you're right, of course, and within minutes these uh, these things are executed when they're when they're orchestrated correctly, they're executed without detection at first. But I mean, I I think I'd need to see an example of a top tier proof of work chain suffering from this problem because i don't think we've seen it in over five years because it's top tier because it's more expensive to perform the attack it doesn't mean like we talk about like i want to like put aside uh, like a political part we put, we talk about technology which uh technology are the yeah, same and like I, I apologize for a big project. I, I, and i apologize for the interruption i just want i want to complete that point really fast uh -huh. since we agree that these are top tier projects originally when i mentioned the, the concept of technological darwinism that's where I was going with it. Proof of work makes sense in order to create a much larger body of hashing power. And, and I agree with you that for much smaller projects, it may not be the correct architecture to test things out. Yeah, that's normally and, where this uh, discussion about proof of work uh, versus proof of stake comes to. And I've heard many times people say that uh, crypto is not for small projects. Like only big solid projects can exist. Uh, and that's why they cannot be double spended because they're big. Well, still, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm happy that Monero is a big major project. Uh, I would agree that it's number one privacy project. And I really, uh, like that fact that you guys, uh, was able to build such a big, strong community. But what I'm trying to do is actually help because to make the project stronger, you have to mitigate all potential attacks before they happen, not after. So, even if we argue right now with the people who say that's never happened before, that's, that's impossible. <laughs> so I wouldn't, I would, I, I don't want to be right in the way that, okay, that's happened. Now you believe me. No, uh, nobody, nobody wants it. Uh, we can prove it or we can discuss it from mass perspective. We can do the calculations. Calculations the, that tells us how it works, how much cost would be. There is no such other, I mean, I can understand that the Bitcoin stands in a very different position because Bitcoin is such a big, such a huge hash rate. So you won't be even able to find the free hash rate to perform the double spend attack, I guess. Only if you, I don't know, if you're the government level uh, player. But uh, still, it's still, as we speak about technology, it still doesn't make proof of work better than proof of stake. It just make Bitcoin uh, in a very good position.
so far. Yeah, so I, I That's agree. my point. Better, better, yeah, better, better is probably not the right word to use, but more costly is, I, I think we can, to- we both totally agree on this, that the concept is making it the most costly and painful for an attacker so that they're less likely to decide to attack in that way. And yeah. the issue that I have, maybe it's, maybe it's a uniquely American perspective too, just that we're so used to seeing financial manipulation here that, that I worry about specifically the only requirement being to have the money, not necessarily to spend it on materiel and on ongoing power costs in order for them to uh, take control of the means of consensus. So, I mean, that said also, is it possible that a, a nation state level actor could find the largest mining facilities uh, in North America, maybe even internationally, and try to take them over? Yes. But then the operational costs of ongoing maintaining that 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 expense it i mean the game theory so far has seemed to play out largely in the way that satoshi outlined it in the early writings and i don't mean to like deify satoshi satoshi is not god satoshi is not muhammad right satoshi is not jesus right so but satoshi did have some really good points uh, you know nick von saberhagen did as well right some really great writings between the two of them some, some really good stuff right so it's it's good stuff to recur to i think Right. It's for foundation, uh, foundational arguments. But Satoshi talked about how the cost of 51% attack and the likelihood of being able to get away with, uh, with very much in a double spend. And we've seen successful examples of it. Good, good double spends. But generally speaking, um, unless you already have, uh, control of a very large wallet vis-a-vis, say, like a large centralized exchange, that's a, I know it's a topic for another, another time, but they're, they're, they're a bad idea because of this, right? They're, they're a honeypot for, large nation state level actors to go take over when they want to commit a double spend. Um, but, uh, but don't yeah, as far as just even like... easier, uh, don't you think that's even easier because you have a proof of work, uh, like, a proof of work, like physical, uh, devices somewhere located. It's make it even easier for a government mm. to control it because they just can come and seize it and put the people like in a, in a uniform. No, say, I, I really guys, don't. You do, you do this, you do, this. maybe because I'm from Russia. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, what that's, I, that's where I think that maybe there is, there, maybe there is a bit of an ideological difference here. Cause in the United States, it's so common for, uh, for our officials to, to work with much subtlety, right? To go and knock on someone's door and say, Hey, we want you to change your opinion, your opinion publicly. And that, that's it. Yeah. That's I mean, do. I'm talking not about or, opinion, or we but want you about to d- physical control. In a physical control, it's way easier if you have a business running on the land of some government. They will be able to much, they don't even need to buy it or they just can make a law that gives you like some regulation that you have to follow because you're on the land, because you probably registered as a business. So for them, it's easier to get, put their hands to your, to your, if they want to control it, it's easier if you have a physical hardware, uh, there. Yes. Yeah, so I, here's where I think we're starting to, to, we're starting to agree even more. Andre, the issue, and this is the issue that I had with, with my, my original thesis is that here we're hearing a lot of politicians talk about ESG, which is, uh, which is, uh, god damn it, <laughs> environment, environmental, social, and government, uh, governance. Sorry, I did, I lost the acronym in my head, but environmental, social, and, and government, uh, concerns or governance concerns. And what they're saying is we must conserve power. We must conserve all these other things for the good of society, for the good of the, you know, the, the ecology, right? The, for the thinking of nature, for the good of, of the people, right? Government. 
um, but then not giving us very clear reasons why. My concern is that that is propaganda to get us to give up proof of work. Why would they push so hard for that? And I contend it's because they've run through their capabilities. They've already modeled their capabilities, and they don't actually have the capabilities to fully take over proof of work networks, but they might have the capabilities to take over proof of stake networks. So they are pushing that agenda. And it is propaganda to get us to give up proof of work. Well, I, I think it's going to, it may work for a very limited, uh, project, maybe like Ethereum, uh, where they actually do it. But if we speak about technology, it's not accurate for technology. Technology is not about, like, we, we just use the wrong example as Ethereum is a wrong reference of proof of stake in terms of decentralization because they probably sacrificed it uh, to be more uh, compliant because it brings more money into the project. So they decided to go this way, which they do what they believe in. Yeah, okay. We believe in different things. We be, be, build a different thing. But we, if we talk, stick about technology itself, uh, I still believe that proof of stake is more protected from the government. It's more protected from centralization. And the players has a more more skin in the game, which they have a really strong bond to the project. Our holders, we have a full, most of our major holders with the project for, since the beginning, for five years. They still support, they never sold it. So I think this, this the great foundation for the project. And they still, they, yeah. they help us, they give money, but they cannot control anything actually because they don't have a, like, a, any, like, real factor to control it. Yeah, I love what that, I love what in the comments Vbits is saying about the one of the problems with the proof of stake model of Ethereum and and most proof of stake networks, these larger uh, smart contract networks where the cost of entry, the barrier of entry to running a validator node is a problem. And I agree with you largely, Andre. I I think that again, yeah. I think that Satoshi did too with the redundancy of full nodes, and I think that more people should be running full nodes and essentially running uh, a validator. Uh, and, a, and a full wallet for more networks at home anyway to give us better redundancy on every coin. Um, and that does, it does need to form more of the basis of consensus for more networks, right? Or bare minimum validation, even if it's not consensus, right? For, for writing, writing the blocks, it bare minimum needs to do some validation, um, after the fact. Um, and think, not enough users understand this anymore. Yeah, what I've learned from uh, Bitcoin, when we were uh, working on CryptoNote, on the, this, it was the first uh, new code base, and uh, we were uh, reading um, notes of different researchers, uh, including Gregory Maxwell. He has a list of, like, what would I do different if I would build Bitcoin now? And uh, from this perspective, I think Satoshi didn't expect uh, this to happen the way it happened. I think he... he he was a genius. Obviously, he created the brilliant technology that was like exploded uh, in these years. But I think we cannot use um, paradigm from him, like from his original work, because it didn't work the way he thought it's going to be working. Like you can see it clearly because like difficult. Oh, yeah, he, he essentially gave up as soon as GPUs came. I mean, I don't. I wouldn't say he gave up, but. Uh, I mean, Practically, he, his participation uh, is measurably lower after the first GPU miner software was written. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that what, yeah, yeah. Uh, but still, I like. I think everybody have a lot of respect because, like, what he did is like amazing, and uh, right. uh, that's why I believe that we should uh, shouldn't be like a stick to some 
uh, ideas to keep it like a, like a whole ideas. We have to always we have to like what we're trying to do is then we always try to do calculations and math to figure out what attacks possible, how it's getting controlled. And the, for a small project, you feel the streets are more. They they are more real. They are like really near you. And to protect yourself, you have to like think really a lot. That's why we are more vulnerable. We're more like sensitive to threats like that. That's why we. I think if we would be like a major ten projects, we wouldn't care that much about consensus, K proof of work, because like. Yeah, it would I, talk, I, want, it would, I want to ask you a question about that in a moment. I'll let you finish, but yeah. I want to ask you a question about that in a moment. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it took. Like it took so much uh, job to rewrite core to make it proof of stake because uh, especially in, the, in this crypto node family, I mean, developers would understand that because you have to validate to, to make proof of stake, you have to validate alternative blocks and you have to validate transactions. And because of the way transactions are made in crypto node, you have to reconstruct the alternative history in the core since this. As, because you have a indexes, you don't refer as IDB, you, you, call, you, you refer as index. You have to reconstruct. It was so much headache. It was so hard to build it. Uh, and we did it only because it was the only way to protect, uh, the, the, like, the user's money. Otherwise, being small project, you can, I mean, even my nearest, I think, I think, um, uh, if you see, Ethereum Classic was attacked. They had a really similar market cap as Monero. And uh, I don't think Monero are in um, some uh, position where you are not threatened by this. I think it's still possible. I, know, I, I, think, I think that the, uh, no, I, I don't think it's possible in the same way. I think so, at least for the, the case of Bitcoin Gold. And I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole because I wanted to ask you a, a relevant question. For, uh, for, for the Zano project. But in the case of, of Ethereum Classic and then Bitcoin Gold, which had a significantly lower hash rate than the nearest, the next nearest projects using the same hashing algorithm, which is the bigger problem. When you've got a yeah. marketplace of, of available idle hash rate that could be directed at it, that's where there's a problem. There is no available idle hash rate for the random X algorithm that isn't already yeah. being used on that's- Monero. Yeah, so like, good thing and, that and beyond that, as it is, algorithm. I think maybe, maybe one issue among miners, right? We made the joke when, when Monero moved to RandomX that we're like, okay, cool. This, this is, you know, finally I can go run a botnet and I can get all of the Monero because, you know, if, if you're good at, at uh, taking over distributed systems, then, um, then you have a competitive advantage there. You don't necessarily have to pay for it because, and again, like, I don't want to deify Satoshi, but Satoshi did talk about this being a vector. A potential attack surface for CPU only algorithms in that, uh, running so-called zombie farms, he called them, right? Of taking over somebody else's, uh, server network and then, and then being able to force it to mine for you. Um, but the question that I had for you, Andre, was if there were the prospect of being able to merge mine, Zano, with random X so that you, you benefited from the same security or possibly even beyond that, being able to merge mine with uh, with a larger project with a much larger hash rate, uh, a la Scrypt or SHA-256. What would prevent you from making that as a security choice since they're already in production yeah, and they're nothing. unlikely to change? Absolutely nothing. I, I think I don't, I think that uh, Random Mix is a great alga. I mean, the difference is only that Ethereum, uh, uh, that what we use as the variation of Ethereum prop is target to video cards and uh, 
you guys targeted for CPU. I don't think there is a difference which device you target. It's just basic idea that you target a uh, market device. So it's cheaper. So it doesn't make economical uh, sense to economical motivation to build the ASICs. So because you already are targeted to expensive and a mass market device, which CPU and uh, video cards are both uh, equally same, I think. And uh, I would, I wouldn't say there would be, uh, yeah, we sure as whatever makes our consensus stronger is greater, of course. Okay, phenomenal. Hey, uh, Doug, I'm, I'm gonna, make, I'm gonna throw this, I'm gonna throw this at our host really fast. Doug, Doug, you heard it here. You heard it here. You can tell the Monero developer community that Andre has said, if they merge mine, then maybe, maybe Zano would make that change to, to randomize yeah, merge mine with Monero. Get yeah. That the word course. is out. Breaking news. Mind your biz. What, what, yeah, I just want to talk a little bit more about random X. Like what is, what is your take on this ideal of one CPU, one vote? Do you think that Does it works this way? Is I mean, that, is that, <laughs> well, the ideal. I, I think Andre and I will, will see this. We'll see very, very much eye to eye on this. It's a beautiful ideal, mm-hmm. but I, I think it's a, I think it's a children's story. I don't think that it actually works that way in reality. I, mean, I think that there are farms. One CPU, one vote is uh, never worked with, as far as I know, in uh, proof of work, but it's, I mean, amount of hash rate. Uh, we always do calculation on the hash rates. Uh, doesn't matter how many CPUs you take in, you always uh, measure the work. Uh, you, you always make the com- calculations or cumulative difficulty, which actually summary of the hash rate. And uh, well, uh, random mix is a yeah great work. I mean, as far as I know, it's uh, perfectly fit for a uh, uh, market CPU, and as soon as perfectly for this particular uh, type of device, it's uh, it works. It's do its job. Did I answer and the I, question? or was the question was different. No, and, Sorry. and I and I feel very much the same. Yeah, it's fit. It's fit for purpose, but it isn't. It, it, I think that it is probably um, it's probably not accurate. To say that RandomX has resulted in one CPU, one vote. I think that, yeah, there, there are larger farms. There are plenty of, yeah, of, uh, of I mean, miners that are not running full nodes, too. I think, did they ever want it to be one CPU, one vote? You can, you can, you can make calculations, uh, like that, if, but, uh, the amount of CPU will be always different. It's also the equal, like, how much one CPU gives the hash rate. That's, that's amount of his vote. That's the value of his vote. Yes. Mm-hmm. You can see it from this perspective, of course. Well, I guess my question is, do you think, do you think that's, that's the th- something worth striving for? Is that the ideal proof of work, the, the ideal way to main, maintain the security of a decentralized system? What, what is, I know, you know, we're talking about proof of stake versus proof of work. Yeah. What, yeah. I can, what, what, yeah, we can talk the, about the, terms the of ideal, proof of work only. What would be the ideal way to essentially control a decentralized network where it could be the most uh, democratic is 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 an egalitarian in terms of access? Do we think one CPU, one vote is that most ideal form and striving for that? Um, I don't I don't think that it matters to try to to try to control it too much. I think when we try to control it too much. We have unintended consequences and blowback. Um, so you can, you can, for example, you can say, well, one wallet, one vote. Well, I mean, I'm not yeah. even particularly technical, but I can, I can provision 15,000 wallets right now with a few keystrokes, right? And then control them. 
Um, it's not that difficult. Andre, who's who's very talented, can provision many, many more wallets and than I can. And one coin, right? one word, guys. That's what matters. Yeah. And anyway, yeah, so. the, the, anyway, the proof of work, it's uh, actually doesn't like how much CPU you have, is how much investment you make for the proof of work. It's just uh, amount of investment you made to contribute to the network. It's the same. You can buy uh, hardware with this or you can buy coins with this if you want to participate in voting, if you want to be part of this. But when you buy the coins, you stick to the project because you cannot use this project mm. uh, like if you don't, if you talk about exotic case, you can't use this uh, uh, coins to participate in other projects. You stick to this project, but when you buy the hardware, you just use it to make money normally. You, do, you buy CPU. Yeah, but that, that's a sunk cost fallacy. I, that's yeah, not always true. Not, so that, that's you, the you, that's the same game theory for for purchasing ASICs because it is a sunk cost ASICs towards one algorithm. It, it is different. It is different. But but it's but that logic is used by a lot of currently Bitcoin maxis for saying that. Well, yeah. you know, you bought SHA two fifty six hashing hardware, so you're not going to mine Monero with it. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's, so you're fully that's, invested in, in just that one that one business. Yeah, now with the coins, though, they, the uh, issue is that they are liquid. Whether or not you feel like somebody may or may feel inclined to sell, it's still a liquid asset, right? Unlike what, the hardware. What exactly? Sorry, I missed. So what? buying coins for, for consensus. No, the coins themselves. Purchasing the coins, that's a liquid asset. So if at any point, maybe maybe you have a bad quarter, maybe you have a great quarter, maybe the price manages to achieve a multiple in the market, and those who are staking right now say, you know what, the the temptation to realize my gains in this investment is so great, I do want to sell. Well, who are they selling to? Do they have the same ideological reasons for staking as the previous owner may have? How do they realize profit? If you don't understand how they, if you don't give them the correct profit incentive and then give them the correct off, uh, off ramp in order to realize that profit, then what happens to the consensus over time? Does it dilute? Do you require many, many smaller participants in order to have a much larger quorum for your proof of yeah, stake I can model. Explain you this. That's a good question. Actually, that's a good question. And we learned it a lot about this too. And, um, yeah, like for, first of all, uh, in, in, in our project, people buy uh, coins, not because they want to make a profit from staking because the staking gives you really, really less, like not, not much. The emission itself is like a uh, 4% per year of all, uh, amount of money, of all emitted money we, uh, emit. Uh, about like less than four percent. Half of these coins, uh, it's like five, five hundred thousand goes to proof of work miners. And the half of this goes to proof of stake miners. So if all proof of stake, if, if all coin holders started to mine, started to do the staking, they will make less than two percent per year. It like it let us to keep a uh, very healthy emission. We can emit really low. Don't, we don't put the pr pressure on the price. But the thing is, because 2% not much of a profit, the people don't do staking because if you have a, like a small wallet, it doesn't even profitable because it doesn't cover your electricity cost. So people are living from staking and that amount of the coins that was given for the year, uh, spread between a smaller amount of people. So the percentage is growing. And it's, after all, you have equilibrium about like we have now, only 60% of the coins are participating in staking. So there was equilibrium that like five or 6% of interest is equilibrium where people are bothered to do actual staking. 
So this system always after correlated to, to you have enough people to stake. If if it's not interesting, they leave the staking horizon, they come back or not come come not coming back. So like it's uh, automatically uh, find the equilibrium anyway. I see there's, yeah. there's some chatter. Uh... People responding to you saying, you know, the, the, uh, where's your evidence for that? Uh, I guess referring to the fact that, uh, you know, it could be mined by bots. Um, what, what's your response <laughs> to, to, to that? Mind? I the, feel like you should have had the, Howard. It would have been great yeah. to have had Howard Chu jump on. Howard, if you're oh. out there, you're listening. Also, we have Arctic Mine that's been waiting patiently. I definitely want to get him up here so he can participate oh. in this combo. But cool. But yeah. I didn't, I didn't touch the bots, uh, subject for proof of work. I didn't. <laughs> well, it's, the, it's, it's also, it's probably not convenient for your branding either, man. Um, there, I, I think Andre has had enough in his lifetime of, of being accused of dealing with botnets and distributed systems. Um, so like, let, let me just, let me own what I said. And that is just the, the memory hardness, the memory requirements for random X. They, they, they haven't, currently outpaced the server capabilities of large farms. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that I can point to some sort of forensic evidence that like definitely this, like, uh, this hash rate that's on this pool is definitely coming from that, uh, that server farm that's been taken over by a botnet. My point is that in terms of the game theory, it's not outside of the realm of possibility. And if it's not outside of the realm of possibility, Somebody somewhere will find the motivation to do it if the incentive matches. And when you talk about being able to hash for free on somebody else's hardware, the incentive is there. So, uh, I mean, it happens with the uh, ASIC mining farms as well. Plenty of, uh, of outside attacks trying to take over the hash rate of current mining operations that are in production. I mean, again, if you see a five megawatt farm hashing Bitcoin and you can manage to steal their hash rate for them and then through a proxy attack, essentially redirect their hash rate through, uh, your, uh, through redirect their hash rate to serve your purposes. Why wouldn't you? That's five megawatts of, uh, of SHA-256 that is then a servant for you, not for them, even though they physically possess it. Right. So I, I think we, I think we do need to talk about some of those. There, there are other attack vectors that I think are more likely than you know, uh, armed men from the government go knocking on the door of a five megawatt mining facility and saying, we own this now. Um, there's, there, it's just, it's always more subtle than we think, right? And it's always more pervasive than we imagine. So, so yeah, I, that, I'm not going to apologize for saying that random X introduced the possibility, like, however remote introduced the possibility for botnets to become a reality in the hash rate for, uh, for Monero, right? In securing the network. I'm not saying that it's definitely happening, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing. These are adversarial systems. <laughs> do, do you see right? it as Arctic Mine? I don't know if you saw. I just brought you up. Uh, yes, I did. Have you chime in here? Uh, mind your biz. I mean, do you see it as creating a, a base layer of security? These, you know, potential uh, bots that can mine. Hash rate is hash rate is hash rate, and it's a self-healing system. It's an elastic system. The way that uh, proof of work consensus operates. Right. So we can scale up or down in the total net hash for the network. The more we have, the more secure it is supposed to be. And I'm not. So without putting a value judgment on any, you know, any nefarious actors who would try to steal, uh, who try to steal energy and hardware, you know, hardware utilization from from a, a, a server operator. I'm, I'm not going to put a value judgment on it. It's, it's probably immoral. Right. It's probably bad. It's probably wrong. Um, I wouldn't do it. And certainly I wouldn't want to get caught doing it. 
my point is that it is possible. The fact that there's an, an what is it, an eight gigabyte memory requirement for XMR for uh, for Random X is not a limiting factor for most modern server farms. It's yeah, it's yeah. not it's not as I've, limiting as most people believe. How you see uh, on um, I, well, I didn't want to talk about botnets, but for me, the botnets uh, are a concentration of the hash power uh, in the hands of people who can act malicious uh, to the projects. We already know that the botnets are criminals, so what, how you feel about they can uh, accumulate enough hash power to attack actual, to perform actual attack on the Monero network? I, I'd like to comment on, on, on this aspect because it's one thing that with especially with CPU mining that we haven't seen, and that is the question of the heat. Um, everybody talks about the power consumption, the value of the electricity. Nobody looks at the, the so-called waste heat that is produced in proof-of-work mining. And this is the one point where I think a lot of people are missing, are missing a very serious important issue. And that is, if I am, I have a home, and I have a gas-fired, uh, or I have electric heat, and I decide to mine Monero during the winter, uh, if I'm using electric heat, there is zero energy cost up to the amount of heat that I need to heat my home. If I'm using a, say, a gas-fired or oil or something like that, then maybe it's like differential. But you have a major favorable economic for decentralization simply because you, you have value in the heat. And this is, I think, one of the things that's giving it Monero a very strong advantage um, against botnets and even against, and certainly against centralized farms. By the way, a botnet, if you're not mining, it becomes easily detectable. So one of the difficulties with a botnet is that you have you're competing with criminal activity, which may not be less detectable than mining. Mining starts producing heat. Again, you see the, uh, and, the, and you start noticing that something's going on. So that's one of the attractions. But the, I think the question of the heat is very important. And, and it also goes to this question of a ESG that people are talking about energy wastage of so-called wastage, I say, in proof of mining. Well, the fact of the matter is, if you look at Europe, for example, the biggest demand for energy is during the winter months. And it's for space heating. And this is where the pressure, and a lot of it is electrical. So you actually can do proof of work in a decentralized fashion. And I'm talking people doing heating at home or a business uh, without having an energy footprint as far as um, carbon consumption or, or CO2 emissions or environmental footprints, etc. And it's powerful for a decentralized percentage because the attacker has to use the concentrated mining form. But the the honest miner that is sitting in their home or heating their business by mining basically has free power. And I think that's one of the factors that is impacting Monero is that it's quite uneconomical to set up a mining farm with CPUs if you're competing with a bunch of people heating their homes and businesses with maybe less efficient equipment that would sit idle anyway. And I think that's the element, the, 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 the first point I wanted to make. The other point I want to make about proof of stake, and Andre, I think, made some very interesting it's not as applicable to small projects, but it's the question between the nominee owner and the beneficial owner. Now, in a small project, you're dealing with the beneficial owner holding the coins. The person who is actually the beneficial owner of that cryptocurrency are sitting in the wallet and they're staking it. And, 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 I, and I can see how that can favor a small project. But when you have large amounts of uh, cryptocurrency deposited in centralized exchanges or custodial wallets, 
These entities by nature are regulated and are obliged entities. They are the ones that are controlling the staking, and they're very, very vulnerable to government regulation attack. And I think uh, Manubis really hit on this, but I don't think we looked in the, the deeper question of the beneficial versus uh, nominee owner. If somebody has uh, coins in an exchange, uh, first of all, there's a regulatory attack. Also, the exchange is in trouble. They may want to stake the coins in an adversarial way to the network in order to cause it to crash or to cause harm to the network. I point. I, I mean, I discussed this as far back as 2015, where uh, and and, uh, and the, the allegations have been made in FTX that they wanted to crash certain tokens in order to get themselves out of liability. I've seen those allegations. And so what you have is is that you have all these coins that are deposited in a centralized wallet or an exchange, which by nature has to be regulated, and it's an obliged entity, and then the government can come in and regulate them. And if the government doesn't regulate them, then you have the problem of an exchange going rogue, and they're running into trouble financially, and so they try to harm the network. Now, that's not going to be an issue with a very small project that does not have a large amount of... Um, Second-layer exchange trading. And I think Andre's point is valid there in the sense if you're dealing with small projects, proof-of-stake is a lot more effective. But when you start getting to the Ethereum thing, the Moneros, I mean, uh, in size, you have a real problem with these nominee versus um, uh, beneficial owners. So I used to want to think some of the final questions on thoughts about this, but anyway, that's sort of my, my comment. Yeah, Arctic Mind, I really appreciate that additional context there of the nominee versus the beneficial owner and uh, and having that be another layer of complexity to the ESG narratives that are being pushed um, because those uh, those two profiles, right, or, or persona, they, they do wind up being affected differently by ESG uh, being pushed as a narrative um, because the more the more likely um, sort of the, the more likely capitulation from uh, from that one owner profile versus the other you laid it out so well um i i appreciate that and, and i agree with much of that um a proof of stake definitely can work uh definitely can work for very specific uh, situations and circumstances but it begs the question at those levels why not just do traditional fundraising and run a test net <laughs> you know for for a cryptocurrency or a blockchain project um why not why not get traditional funding and run a test net to prove your assumptions, to go through and just create adversarial conditions and and prove uh, in various ways, and essentially just say, okay, no, we're a white house block, we're a white house blockchain shop, and so we're we're pushing through all of these these test suites. We're innovating new test suites to be able to come up with new systems, and then uh, and then in the end, say, okay, we've gone through whatever we're at version point eight of of our test suite. We think we're ready to run a mainnet. And then yes, you figure out the, uh, the the correct consensus model at that point. But I see way too many projects that have been floundering, and I've been covering them for years now in in a portfolio. They've been floundering They're at below a million dollar market cap or below below even uh, a ten million dollar market cap. And if we're calling, if this is the equivalent of say like a, a valuation of a company, you you really can't run. I mean that that's that's like freelancer territory. That's not small business territory even um in terms of a, a corporate valuation so like what i and i know this this sounds very different from the sort of diehard cypherpunk free and open source software uh framing of, of the of the debate here but there's a point at which 
you just have to ask, is it economically viable? Is it economically feasible? And if it isn't economically viable or feasible after a certain number of years, just like with a business, you're probably just going to do better by cutting bait and changing to a different model. Um, guys, we, we traditionally try to go to the spaces to get questions from there, but we have so much talented up here, up here talking right now. I don't want to, I don't want to move away from this. Uh, now we got, we got body that jumped up. He wants to ask a question, body, go ahead. And then, uh, anybody that's listening in a Twitter spaces, maybe best if you just drop a comment. And if I see something there, I'll try to bring it up in the discussion here. Go ahead, body. Hey, so I had actually quite a few thoughts um, on this on this topic. Um, one thing is that I have a hard time seeing much of a difference between proof of stake versus ASICs. Um, almost every argument that you would make against proof of stake can you can just slap that same argument onto onto ASICs, and it's basically the same thing. With one caveat, the big place that I see is proof of work mattering a lot more is when we're talking about the launch of a network. Because if you're going to go proof of stake directly, how do you decide who gets those coins first? It seems like proof of work is the only reasonable, like fair kind of way of doing that. And then, of course, That's with good. CPU mining being the most fair way of doing that. I was expecting this question, actually. That's a good point. Yeah, well, and Andre, and so, um, too, maybe you have I think some... in Andre's benefit, I'm just going to jump in and say, like, that was exactly the launch mechanic and distribution mechanism that they chose for his project. So I, I think his track record proves that he agrees with you. And that's pretty cool. It's really cool to hear. Um, yeah, so, uh, I mean, after you've gotten a certain amount of the coin mined, I, I don't know, I haven't, like, done any of the math on it, but I'm sure there's some threshold, you know, once you're mining some certain percent or less, you could probably switch to proof of stake um, without too many negative um, influences. Because at heart, so two things, money is a social construct in general, like just as a very broad um, kind of philosophy. And these are all social networks at heart. Like that's what these are. And it makes sense since, you know, money being a social construct. Um, so I, I, I don't, I'm not entirely against um, switching to proof of stake, um, but it's just like, you know, there's such a big change, like could definitely pose problems. Um, and the last thing I just wanted to bring out is that the whole OFAC and Ethereum thing, they started censoring transactions before the merge, before proof of stake. Um, and that just had to do with minor extractable value and the ability to ooh, calculate ooh. the maximum extractable, extractable value. Um, you basically need to be running um, a full archival node and you need to have solid hardware so that you can calculate that within the 15 second block time. Is it 15 seconds? I think it's 15 seconds. Yeah. Um, not, not so little, people not outsource that. Seconds. Yeah. So people yeah. outsource that because you don't want to do that on your own computer. And it just so happens to be that the people that give you the most money, uh, the most minor extractable value are, they just personally don't include OFAC transactions. So. Right, and to to your point, also, I I, I always uh, I always bristle at uh, at MEV being called minor extractable value because it's another one of these narratives that was pushed forward by the Ethereum core devs. Right, they they didn't like the idea of just calling it maximal extractable value, um, and acknowledging the fact that that was third parties such as pools, not miners themselves, not the hash rate providers, but it was pools and pool coordinators that had the necessary infrastructure, as you said, to be able to operate within that 15 second nominal block time. So, yeah, there was all, I mean, there's all kinds of manipulation in Ethereum. I agree. It is not a perfect project. Far from it. Um, so, and with the censorship that went on by some of those parties, you're right. They had, they, they had what they, what they felt was a, an incentive to censor and to earn their, um, to earn their fees some other way. I mean, there, if you can arbitrage value without having to provide any yourself, 
again, that's that's strong incentive. Um, and it's not illegal. Wow. Uh, now it's not even immoral, right? To, to just arbitrage value without providing any. MEV is was probably a big mistake. Um, but when you have a gas fee marketplace system, it's inevitable. Well, yeah, it was definitely think, completely unavoidable. One thing I would say about Ethereum is that the blocks time so so low, fifteen seconds. You raise all sorts of other problems with what they call uncle blocks, and like I, I still remember in Monero when we went from one minute to two minute uh, block time. So I think two minutes is very close to optimal. Uh, one of the main concerns, of course, was often blocks. And Ethereum has massive, uh, we call them uncle blocks, a structure around that. So 15 seconds is really pushing it. Uh, I mean, you're starting even to get into relativistic effects uh, just on a worldwide network. Um, I'm kind of about the feeling that Monero is pretty well at the limit with two minutes. That's what you could do in a, in a decentralized network. And once you start going significantly below that, you're going to have, you're going to run into problems. Does that change at all with bandwidth improvements on, like, global bandwidth? Well, it doesn't matter because you're still – global bandwidth is not your limitation. Your limitation is relativistic effects. I mean, you're going to get to a point. If you you start going to a second uh, just on the distribution of the blocks, you're going to have the problem that it takes um, 500 milliseconds just to send data across the world uh, through fiber optic cables. And that is not going to change because you're dealing with the speed of light limitations in fiber. So it's not a bandwidth question. It is actually a, a latency issue uh, uh, at that very level. So you can improve bandwidth uh, and improve throughput, but you still have that latency problem of relativistic effects. Like, uh, I actually even learned about this when I um, uh, signed up for the tickets for the uh, Chaos Computer Conference in, in Leipzig in Germany uh, a few years back. If you're in Canada, you have 150, it was about 150, 50 millisecond disadvantage over someone in Europe. And I was kind of very successful in getting tickets, uh, but a high fiber optic con- connection and everything. But you're leading with that server latency, which is in the, you know, 100 milliseconds uh, range, uh, 200 milliseconds, you start to get into the range. So that, that alone is, is a fact. Yeah, I, I love that you're bringing this up as well. I saw Andre kind of smirk about like, oh, nominal block times and et cetera. Yeah. So, I, I did a uh, just for kicks. Uh, I think it was maybe four years ago, where I forked not Bitcoin but Turtlecoin uh, with Rocksteady. Uh, you know, rest in peace. Uh, who uh, who talked about that as as far as like uh, we just did a little hands on. He was very generous with his time because I'm I'm technically a layperson, but we forked a crypto note live and had to choose what our block time would be. Two minutes does seem like yeah, any lower than that, and at least as a uh, you know as a complete layperson. You're not prepared to uh, to guard against any adversarial attacks against your network either. Like so many so many additional factors uh, come into play with uh, having your block times be too low. Yeah. Uh, can I make a few comments about that? What was uh, said yes, before? Yes. Yeah. The first of all, uh, I'm glad that's been. Actually, I was expecting the strong points uh, against proof of stake, which was never said, but was mentioned by Arctic Mine. Uh, uh, the, 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 the really good point is, um, when you have, um, ex- exchanges, uh, centralized exchange, they can, uh, create a big concentration of the coins. And, uh, that could be a weakness point of proof of stake, which, uh, it's normally, it's the, that's, that's the good argument against proof of stake. Uh, I would agree with this. And that's the first of all, Zana is a, 
small project and the second Zana is a privacy project exchange, not really uh, they like hesitate to <laughs> list us. So we don't have much exchanges and I think it's gonna be getting worse. But actually what we're doing uh, is that we're trying to build DeFi inside Zana because of this, because we think it's uh, exchanges will be pushing us out from from uh, from listings and uh, it's more safe for proof of stake to have your own decentralized uh, system that provides and uh, generates liquidity inside it. That's, I think that's important to mention. And also, also was a great point uh, about initial uh, distribution. And that's also a valid point about proof of stake. So where you have an initial uh, distribution and then people who reach so gets only richer and richer and people who get less money, they, they have done no way to get more because like the, the all goes to fractions. Like, and uh, that's, that's a really valid point. And uh, we uh, ourselves as a project, we are not in this position because we have a history with the proof of work for a long time. So initially most like a lot of our coin was distributed with a proof of work. Uh, no one questioned this, but I agree as, as we talk about proof of stake as a technology. Uh, it, itself, it's valid point and the initial distribution, uh, should be done in a smart way to avoid this. And second, uh, the staking, uh, the global, the global, uh, profitability, like the, the global interest should be as slow as possible, uh, as, as slow as possible to keep network secured by, uh, it should not be significant effect to make uh, people who already own money more rich and more rich. Uh, that's what we also was trying to achieve in Dana. We put the really small percentage. So people uh, who do staking, they not making much money from this. They just do the contribution to the network. That's, uh, I think, important point uh, to mention. Hey, I have a question about... Um... Uh, a way that you might try and um, do proof of stake so that, you know, you talk about if you can amass a significant amount of funds, then, you know, suddenly you're maybe you can start taking over the network. Could you do something where you incre incrementally reduce the um, the block reward for people that for wallets that are larger and larger? Um, now, I know that you would, you know, hypothetically, you could just divide up your coins, a bunch of different wallets, but you also start running into cost there when you have to do transactions with, say, 10,000 different wallets um, when you're trying to, to deal with, you know, when in reality you're a whale and you're just trying to divide that up, would that be viable? Is that something that could be done or is that kind of uh, not realistic? Sorry, hey, what may, is may the I question? Just offer an opinion here? So, so I, know you're, I know you're asking Andre about specifically how he wants to craft his, his project, but I'm, I'm going to offer some pushback to that idea, buddy. That's functionally a tax on, on success. That's a tax on having large holdings. I, uh, the libertarian in me is very much upset at your suggestion that, that larger wallets should receive, uh, fewer, <laughs> fewer rewards just cause they, uh, they've amassed more coins. Um, uh, anyway, just. Uh, sorry, uh, I didn't get what, will, what is, uh, the question? Uh, can you repeat it please or rephrase it somehow? I didn't get it. So, so the idea, one of the problems with proof of stake, it sounds like if you have a single wallet that's amassed a significant portion, a significant percentage of the coin, that, um, you know, they could essentially control the network. They could start earning more and more rewards faster than everyone else. 
So then a design, just an idea, brainstorming. Could you make it so that stakers, as their wallet size grows larger and larger, they actually get incrementally less and less reward? So yeah, like maybe if you have... We actually have no idea who has, I mean, the network has no idea who has how much money. There is no such thing as a balance as it be, as it's in a, for example, Ethereum. It, they always it's mentioned that, uh, that anyone then can split the funds into like 10,000 different wallets, which would also work if we would have this such a system. But uh, in our system, there is not even possible to figure out how much on the balance, like same manner, how much particular wallet has in the wallet. All it's based on the probability of finding gold depends on the uh, the the value from value amount on the output of transaction. That's so, interesting. So you're able to maintain the hidden amounts feature, yeah. but without actually having to reveal the amount for stakers. Yeah, that's while well, that's developer that second developer who is working with me. He figured this out. That was like a magic. I I couldn't even believe that it's possible to do this. But we did a review. We did also uh, consulted with Sarang Netter ex Manera mathematician. He also helped us. It actually, Koi, Koi did a lot of help on this too. Yeah. Koi helped us to come up with a more optimal solution. Yeah, that's that's magic. But that's how it works. And and. Uh, I mean, that's really great. It's not compromise your privacy. So if Manira ever consider to implementing proof of stake, we would be more than happy to help in any way we can do. Whatever you want to say about the, the, the question of um, the large wallet, the problem is not a large wallet because in the proof of stake environment, the large player has a, a has a bigger stake if that is actually the beneficial owner. The problem is that the network has no way of determining or detecting whether you're dealing with a nominee or you're dealing with a beneficial owner. And the nominee, in some situations, uh, even without involvement of government, can be very adversarial to the network because the nominee might be short uh, in a big way. And that, I think, is the concern that, 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 sort of, that we have to look at here is, is how do you detect whether or not that at the network level that owner is a nominee Always a beneficial. What owner. is nominee? Nominee, it would be, for example, a, an exchange. Like if I deposit Monero with XYZ, well, with an exchange, and that exchange then, um, well, I use Ethereum as an example. I deposit Ethereum in an exchange, and that exchange then takes my Ethereum, which have, which uh, then now become the, the nominee owner of the, of the Ethereum. I am the beneficial owner of the Ethereum. So then they stake it as a nominee. They're, they're controlling the staking. So the nominee is controlling the staking, not the beneficial owner. If you have a, a self-hosted wallet, you, you have your own wallet, the nominee and the beneficial owner are the same. But with a uh, uh, an exchange or hosted wallet, a custodial wallet, you put, you put that funds in trust with the exchange. The exchange then becomes the nominee owner of the cryptocurrency, and they're the one controlling the keys and staking it. And that's where the problem arises, because the nominee may have very adversarial interest to the, sorry the, the the nominee has adversarial interest to the to the network, with the beneficial owner might not. And the and the biggest problem that I have seen with this is that even a situation where the exchange runs a fractional reserve on the asset, 
And this is then they actually the, that nominee has an interest in to stake the coins in order to harm the network in a in a in a destructive fashion. And that's really there's no way the network can detect that. So it's not about size of wallet. Uh, I think that's a big misconception to to look at it from the point of view of the size of the wallet. The problem is who is who's ultimately the beneficial owner of that asset, and that the network can't detect. Yeah, I right. agree with this. That's a great point. And uh, as I told before, the exchanges as a point of concentration of users' assets uh, theoretically create a threat to proof of stake if the exchange decide to act violent. That's why we. Now, uh, we've been asked to implement a delegation of staking so people can just put money uh, in some, like, safe way. But uh, we never, like, refuse, always refuse to do this because we don't want to create any point of concentration. So I think what you're saying is right, that exchange, if you have, a, like, one or two exchanges, major exchanges that concentrate a lot of coins itself, they can theoretically act, uh, be a bad actor. Uh, but as soon as you, for example, have in the Zana case, as we're building your own uh, own tools inside the network, decentralized tool for exchanging, uh, that's mitigate this problem. Or also in case of like Monero is a big project, you will have a, like, a, I don't know how much, but you obviously have a, a lot of exchanges. So it's also mitigate the problem if you have a, like at least 10 exchanges that's not create one single point of like a big centralization. It's keep in mind to perform this attack, you have to accumulate like a, like 50% of the whole supply, which like really hard, like I would hardly imagine mm-hmm. would ever like any exchange would have anything like nearly close to this. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to offer pushback against that point, Andre, against that assumption, and just say that when it comes to centralized exchanges, it may be true that 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 you don't have a one single centralized exchange, um, or um, that that is uh, that is in possession of 50% of the coin supply, but it could be true that you have a very small number of either centralized exchanges or just family offices for investment. They might not be exchanges per se; they may just be a custodian a custodian of some other type. Yeah. Um, but you can have just in a some very small quorum of that sort of uh, wallet profile, you could accumulate 50% of the token supply. Yeah, but they, they, they only be a half dozen. Even those managing, they won't be any, making any malicious actions against the network because they lose money. It's no, that's only not true. because exchange, exchange is a, a, a different point because exchange doesn't own this money. They just custody it for the users. So if they screw up the network, the users, the, the users of the exchange will lose the money because the value will be dropped. But exchange itself, okay. But if you have a, something like a family management or some like uh, guys, if they actually part of the group, they own the uh, tokens itself, they would never do this. Mm, I, I, so I think I think that's an, I think it's a dangerous assumption to presume that there's never a a reason that 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 a large holder will need to quickly divest. We've seen it too uh, many times in cryptocurrency what, what, that there is either quickly divest, divest or just quickly transfer. That's, that's a different risk. That, that's a different risk. The 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 uh, but, but but a very valid risk, and that is the fact that the large holder may need to divest for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, I mean, in a classic example, let's say you have a very large holder that live in a in a country where there is capital gains taxes and estate taxes, and they pass away, and some of the estate has to divest. 
the holdings all of a sudden. Uh, that's a thought that you may have to consider. The problem that, that I see with exchanges, and we, and I think we're seeing this quite a bit in the, in the FTX, uh, situation, is that there's a lot of, uh, contagion and, uh, linked accounts, etc. So you could see sort of all sorts of other, um, problems with state coins simply because of contagion between exchanges and counterparty accounts and so on. The, and the other problem, of course, is that 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 uh, player is now short or can be short in the failing exchange scenario, and that's the concern where they will attack the network. And it doesn't have to be 50%, uh, 51% attack. I mean, you can still look at situations where, for example, the exchange is regulated, and the classic example that was given of Tornado Cash, and then regulators come in and say to the exchanges, you can't validate these transactions, so they slow them down, they disrupt the network in all sorts of ways. So there's all sorts of possible attacks that go short of the 51% attack. Guys, yeah, I but it's not likely situation when exchange hold anything gotta... close to like even 5% of the coin supply. If you see the closing time, Doug. Sorry, I'm sorry for the interruption, gentlemen. It looks I, like I have, to, I have to jump in here. I'm torn so right sorry. now from uh, the, the, the <laughs> you know the great loves in my life. My daughter, who I have, I do not want to disappoint or miss witnessing her giving this poem and listening to the, the sweet sounds of we'll continue you guys conference. talking about uh, crypto at this level. I, I am torn, but I'm going to have to choose my daughter on this one. Uh, we're gonna have, we're gonna have to cut Jeff, it off. How dare you, sir? How dare you? <laughs> I commend you. you have, I think we had a really good discussion. This is amazing. Anybody that's listening, uh, sorry we weren't able to, you know, do Q&A with everybody, but I wanted to keep the convo going with the heavy hitters up here. Anybody who's listening, please try to make your way down to Monerotopia. Uh, I know Arctic will be there. Body will be oh, there. Yes. Andre will be there. Uh, I don't know. Mind your biz. What do you think, man? Can we get you down there? What are our dates, and what are, where are we in Las Vegas? Mexico, no, City. Mexico City. Mexico City. May seventh. What 7th, are our dates? Sixth uh, and seventh. May sixth and seventh. Uh, I am. I. I know for a fact that I'm in Estonia the a couple of days after that. But maybe. Maybe. Maybe, maybe. we'll we'll talk you up. Maybe we can make you. Maybe convince you. Um, guys, we're gonna cut it off here. Thank you so much, everyone. Um, Andre, we'll continue to chat. Maybe we could, uh, you know, do another spaces with you if you want before. Um, the, the conference and thanks again, everyone. Yeah. Great. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mind show. your biz. Maybe the Monero talk too. That, that would be yeah, amazing. Definitely. It's an honor. Thank, Thank you. you so much. All right. Thank you. Offline. All right. Thank you all for joining us. Have a great Thank you guys. weekend. Greatly we'll appreciate see you it. Thank you, Baldy. Thank you. All. Cheers. All right. Bye guys. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this week's Monerotopia episode. We stream live shows every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern. You can find and subscribe to our show on YouTube and Odyssey or listen to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter or join us in the Monerotopia Telegram group. See you all next week.